This is day five of the 2022 Idlewild Bible School. Our first period teacher is Brother Jason Hensley. His general subject is Elijah, a man of like passions. Today's topic is Carmel and Judgment. Brother Jason. I was, I was ready for that. <laughs> All right, if, if you didn't do it, I was going to remind you, so. Okay, well, good morning again. I hope you are doing well. It's good to see you here on day five. And I am really looking forward to this class together because, uh, for me, this was where my big paradigm shift kind of happened with Elijah, because... Looking at the raising of the widow's son, as we did yesterday, and seeing that Scripture shows that essentially as the spirit of Elijah. This is the emblematic uh, event in Elijah's life. It made me wonder, well, then what's happening with Carmel? You know, th I thought this was the big deal. I thought this was the time that Elijah showed everybody who he was, the man of fire. And he showed, he proved Yahweh is God, right? So what is actually happening here? And that's what we're going to spend some time on. And you got a little bit of a hint, Carmel and judgment. And I think what we're going to see as we consider Elijah at the time of Carmel is that he's very much like us. By that I mean that when he learns a lesson, it's a few steps forward and a few steps backward. A few steps forward, a few steps backward, right? And hopefully... There is a constant progression, although it's a lot slower, I think, than we'd often like it to be. And I think that's what we're going to see with Elijah, that God at Carmel is going to give him an opportunity to apply what he learned with the widow. And I'd like to suggest to you that Elijah actually misses it. He doesn't realize that's what's happening, and he doesn't apply the lesson. So let's, let's take a look and, and see what you think. Again, remember, at any time, if you disagree with me, that's totally fine. You can stand up and yell, I disagree with you. You can tell me why. If you don't have a reason why, then that's just not a good idea to do. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm happy, I'm happy for you to, you know, tell me why you think it's wrong. And uh, we, can, we can chat about it. All right, so what we got here is number five, Carmel and Judgment. The main lesson is that God decides when it is time for judgment. And I think that is what is really being emphasized in this record. It wasn't wrong for judgment to come, and this is what Elijah consistently had to learn. It wasn't wrong for judgment to come. It wasn't wrong for the prophets of Baal to be destroyed. But God is the one who's supposed to decide when that happens, not us. So... That's what we are going to see today. God is the one who decides when it is time for judgment. So we're going to look at the preparation for this. And by the preparation, I mean the uh, meeting with Obadiah. So that's sort of a funny little uh, interlude here between the raising of the widow's son and Mount Carmel. So we're going to look at that, the preparation, the visit with Obadiah. Then we're going to talk about the story or the, the events that happen as we... Uh, as Elijah sets up Mount Carmel. And then I want to present to you some of the problems with this story. Again, we don't, we don't often think about those, but they're very much there. And I think because we're so familiar with it, we don't say, wait a minute, that's really weird that he says that. 
or that's really not actually okay that he does that. So we're going to see various events that happen here that I think might spin this a little bit differently. So God decides when it's time for judgment, and the question is, why did God answer Elijah's prayer? Now, I'll give you a hint. You can cogitate on this one. I don't think God actually did. So think about that. All right. Now, he will, just to make that clear. God always answers prayers. But I don't think he answered it on Carmel, but he will in the future. Okay. So Elijah's time with the widow had made a big difference for him, and it was preparing him for what was coming next. So that was the idea. God was building on the lesson of the ravens, he was building on the lesson of the widow, and now he has this big event in front of a lot of people where there's going to be immense pressure to go back to how he was before, and is he going to generalize those lessons? Just to bring out some proof here that what was happening with the widow was really a preparation or a foundation for what was about to happen on Mount Carmel, take a look at this. The widow is a widow, obviously. Israel is described as a widow, or Jerusalem is described as a widow. Now, I recognize that the time period is not quite the same. Okay, so I acknowledge that. So if that doesn't convince you and you feel like that's a stretch, cross that one off, that's fine. Baal worshiper. We know that the widow was that, right? We talked about that yesterday. She was a Baalah. Israel was Baal worshippers at that time. It was a particular form of Baal worship. So I don't, I don't know if you've recognized before when you're reading, there's Baal Peor, there's various different Baals, and this is the Sidonian Baal that we're having an issue with. And the same thing with that woman, right? She lives in Sidon. And same thing with Israel. It's the Sidonian Baal that they're having an issue with. And yet, the woman has a knowledge of Yahweh, right? Yahweh came and spoke to her. She, uh, she is willing to acknowledge when, when um, Elijah says, as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives. It says she has this knowledge of Yahweh, and so does Israel. But again, it's, it's not totally complete, right? There's, there's some holes there. It's interesting that Elijah says, as Yahweh lives to the widow, and he also says, as Yahweh lives to Israel, 1 Kings 17.1. He references the God of Israel to the widow. Only other time he does that is in reference to Israel in 17.1. And Elijah is seen as responsible for her suffering, right? That's what she says. Did you come to cause, to bring my sin to remembrance? So she sees Elijah as responsible for her suffering, and, well, Israel sees Elijah as responsible. You remember Ahab? Is it you, O troubler of Israel? And, I mean, really, Elijah kind of is responsible because he's the one who said, it's not going to rain except by my word. So you can see these parallels here so that not even, we're not even talking about Carmel here. We're just talking Israel, that this widow, this Gentile widow, in fact, has a number of parallels to Israel, so that God is not just, he's not only teaching Elijah to care about people in general, but it's a, I want you to generalize this, to recognize that I care about Israel. These people that you have spurned, that you're saying they deserve this drought, all of this, you have to recognize 
the way you feel about this widow right now, the way you cried out for her son, that's how I feel about Israel. Okay, so we have these parallels. Now, let's take a look at this. It's not just widow and Israel that are paralleled, but now what I want you to see is a parallel between the widow and Mount Carmel. What's fascinating about this, God knows the end from the beginning, right? So I think it's amazing that he structures what Elijah goes through with the widow, knowing what Elijah is going to create on Carmel. Isn't that astonishing? Like this, is how, this is how God works. He knows what Elijah is going to try and set up on Mount Carmel. So notice, remember, God did not command Mount Carmel. What was the only thing God told Elijah to say to Ahab? It's going to rain, right? That was all he was, all he was told to say. God did not command Carmel. So, God knows, though, that Carmel's going to happen. So he sets up the record of the widow to prepare Elijah for what's going to happen on Carmel. So, widow blames Elijah. That is where, at Carmel, Elijah is blamed by Ahab, the troubler of Israel. The word severe here is used. The widow is in a severe trial. 1 Kings 17, 17, same word. The trial or the drought is severe at Carmel, 1 Kings 18, 2. The widow needs to choose. Is she going to be a Baalah or is she going to serve Yahweh? She's got to choose, 1 Kings 17, 24. Israel needs to choose. Remember what Elijah says? How long halt ye between two opinions, right? Depending on what translation you read, that's the King James. So Israel needs to choose between the two. Now, in addition to that, you just have very similar language. The widow is gathering wood. That's your word, eitz, in Hebrew. 1 Kings 17.10. And Elijah and the prophets of Baal are gathering wood. 1 Kings 18.23. The widow is preparing a meal for Elijah. 1 Kings 17.13. And Elijah commands the people to prepare the altars. 1 Kings 18.23. Same word. There is a jar used, which if you're looking at it in, in your English translations, it's not going to say jar. It's your Hebrew word kad. There, 35, 37. It shows up in 1 Kings 17, 12, 14, and 16. And it is the, uh, quote, cruise of oil. It's that vessel that she puts the oil in. And when Elijah says, pour out water on the altar, they bring these cruises or these barrels, is what the King James says, these barrels full of water. It's the same word. So what you can see is that the record is specifically paralleling these two events. I think in order to allow us to recognize that everything Elijah had learned with the widow, when he stepped on Mount Carmel, he was supposed to realize, wait, this is the same thing. Here I am, think about this, here I am laughing at these people, making fun of them, getting ready to kill them, would he have done that with the widow? Would he have done that when the widow's son died? And I think that was the lesson. That's what Elijah was supposed to realize, that everything up to this point was teaching him about the power of relationship and how much God cared about people and wanting to turn people, wanting to see people change. And God was giving Elijah the opportunity to connect. But Elijah goes back to how he was before. And that's what we do. 
This is, this is how we act. We learn the lesson, we get in a new situation, and we forget to apply the lesson. We go back. But we get there eventually, and so does Elijah too. Okay. So, 1 Kings 18.1, God eventually comes to Elijah. The word of God comes to him and says, it's time for you to go tell Ahab it's going to rain. And remember Elijah's thinking, that therefore means what? People are going to convert. So that's what he's thinking. The people are going to convert. Now, what's fascinating is as he goes to Ahab to deliver this message, he randomly, randomly runs into Obadiah. And I think when we have things like this, this funny little interlude, you look at it and you're kind of like, why, why is that there? You know, I thought we were doing the story of Elijah. I thought we were talking about Mount Carmel. What's the point of this? I think we need to ask, why did God want this little interaction in Scripture? Well, let's just see what we notice as we read through it, particularly in relation to the lesson Elijah's just learned, the lesson of relationship. So, let's see. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Now, did you notice how Obadiah is described? That's a pretty good description. You know, I, I think any of us would feel pretty good if that was how God decides to describe us. So this is the description. Now, I don't know if you notice this. I'm really into charts in this class. So I don't know if you, I don't know if you notice this, but the way Obadiah is described is actually the same way the widow is described. So we're specifically told that the famine was severe. Same thing, we're told it's during the famine. The widow is searching for sticks. She's going and gathering sticks. Obadiah is searching for grass. The widow is about to die, and Obadiah is also about to die. Do you remember why? Because Elijah shows up and says, go tell Ahab that I'm here. And Obadiah says, well, great. That's the end of my life now. Because, you know, I'm going to tell him that you're here, and then you're not going to be here, and then, you know, I'm in trouble. They actually say the same thing. Or Elijah says the same thing to them, sorry. Elijah says the same thing, as Yahweh lives and as Yahweh lives. There's this hesitation there, and Elijah's trying to convince them by saying, as Yahweh lives, it's going to be okay. She follows Elijah's directions, so does Obadiah, even though they probably wouldn't have wanted to. And then provides bread for, prophet, for uh, the prophet, that's what the widow does, and so does Obadiah. Provides bread for prophets. So once again, you can see the record is structured in such a way so as to say, what are you going to do, Elijah? Now's your chance. So I think that's why the story of Obadiah is here. Because not only are we being prepped for Mount Carmel, but what you can see is God is giving him like stair steps. You know, it's, it's like, okay, I know you've had this rough relationship with Israel, so I'll give you one faithful Israelite. 
how will you treat him? And then he gets Mount Carmel. So it's, it's this consistent, what are you going to do in this situation? What are you going to do in this situation? Can you generalize these lessons? Okay, now, just to prompt him even further, I think, look at Obadiah's greeting. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? So he calls him my lord. Now, quick question, important trivia. There's one other person who has the relationship with Elijah to call him my lord. Anyone know who it is? Elisha, yes, it is Elisha. So Elijah is repeatedly referred to as Elisha's lord. So it's interesting then that that's what Obadiah calls him, my lord Elijah. So I, I think this is indicating, right, that a, a very big respect and perhaps even some kind of prior relationship or something along those lines. But it's interesting then how Elijah responds. So Obadiah says, is it you, my lord Elijah? And what does Elijah say? He answered him, it's I. Go tell your lord. Behold, Elijah's here. Now, that is true, right? Obadiah does work in Ahab's household. And in fact, in verse 10, he does refer to Ahab as his lord. So what you can see is, again, how Obadiah is uh, representative here of Israel. He's got this faithfulness to God, and yet he's still living and working within the house of Ahab and trying to, trying to figure out how, how does he make this work. But Elijah won't have it. He can't see past it. But you remember yesterday? He was able to see past the Ba'alah, the fact that this woman was a pagan, and yet he can't see past it with Obadiah. And so this is what we are really going to be seeing today, that when we embrace this attitude of judgment, it's fascinating because when we start to judge, we'll say things like, well, you have to be consistent you know, consistency is so important. You can't ever let up. You know, this, this is how we start to think when we judge. And yet, you know what we do? Oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll break the rules this time because I have a good reason, right? And, uh, you know, I won't be consistent this time because of this and this and this. We give ourselves mercy when we judge, but we never give it to anyone else. I mean, look at this. Elijah is totally hammering Obadiah, and yet... Couldn't somebody have said, uh, Elijah, haven't you just been like living in Sidon for a year? Like, you know, that's kind of weird, right? Like, and you've been eating from unclean birds. Like, you, you got some problems going on here too. But uh, Elijah just, he won't even have it. He won't say, no, in his mind, you're either here or you're here. And that's it. So he can't see past it. So the record then makes the parallel with the widow stronger. Right? Obadiah says, do you understand that I am about to die? I'm about to die because of you, right? And this is the same thing the widow had said. So this, this was like God, you know, giving big flashing lights. Like, are you getting this, Elijah? Like, I'm giving you the opportunity here. Are you going to recognize what's going on? He does not, though. So after Obadiah explains his faithfulness, Elijah totally ignores it. Obadiah says, uh, you know, maybe you didn't hear Elijah, you know, because it was secret. 
Maybe you didn't hear about it, but there were 100 prophets. Jezebel was going to kill them. I saved them. Do you think it's easy, you know, to like steal bread out of the palace for 100 people? It's a drought. I got water for all of them. I am not. The only word I can think of is obsequious. Sorry. I am not this obsequious servant of Ahab. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I, I would have used something else, but nothing came. So, so yeah, you know, that's what he's trying to say. Like, I'm not, I'm not this guy that you keep portraying me as. And yet, do you remember Elijah's answer? Elijah just says, yeah, Obadiah's like, look, I've done all these good things. I'm, I'm actually unfaithful. And Elijah's like, yeah, go tell your Lord that I'm here. In other words, yeah, I don't care if you die. Right? Obadiah just said, I'm going to die if I do this. And Elijah's like, yeah, well, go get it over with. It's, this, is, this is rough, right? Can you imagine Obadiah walking back and being like, wow, I didn't think he was like that. You know, it's, it's pretty bad. And in fact, maybe Obadiah was there at Mount Carmel and he heard this, 1 Kings 18.22. I don't think we usually realize that Elijah said 1 Kings 18.22 because he says it twice later at Mount Sinai when he says, everyone has forsaken you and I, only I, am left. He says that on Carmel. And who's probably standing there? Obadiah, who's standing there thinking, no, actually, I hid a hundred of them, and me, right? And Elijah's like, I'm the only one. So you can just imagine how Obadiah feels, right? It's, this is like, you know, total hero deflation. <laughs> okay. Never mind that Elijah himself was inconsistent. And that's the problem, right? We get all bent on consistency. And I'm not saying consistency is bad, right? It's good. It's a good thing to aim for. But as humans, we just aren't consistent. And I think that's what we have to recognize. And we, can't, we can't judge people. We can't judge their character for being inconsistent because that's what we are too. And so this is Elijah, the guy who ate food from unclean birds and just laid on a dead body who's out here criticizing Obadiah. But scripture says that Obadiah was righteous. Obadiah feared Yahweh greatly. And in fact, it's almost like, like there's this emphasis because if you read it in the Hebrew, right, you get to read Obadiah's name and his name means servant of Yahweh. So it's like scripture is saying, I, you know, we don't want you to miss this here. This guy is God's servant. He's a good guy. So his name means servant of Yahweh. But this is what, this is what living by law does to us. It's all about judgment. Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5, it's the parable of the moat and the beam. I don't know if you've ever wondered with that parable why Jesus says it's a beam in your eye, right? You know, couldn't it have been, couldn't he have said a beam in your face or, you know, a, a beam through your hand or something like that? But it's specifically in your eye, meaning you can't see. And when you start to judge, you can't see it all. And in fact, the whole thing's kind of comical. I, I'll, I'll just say this real quick. Um, your word there in the Greek is, is dokos, and it means, if you look it up in the Septuagint, it's often used in reference to the beam used to build a roof. I think we often think of it like a two-by-four, which they didn't have then. So, you know, that's an important thing to think about. 
but it was a roof beam, right? So you like look up here and you look at the beams that are used in, in holding up a roof. Those are really big, right? This is the kind of thing that you wouldn't be walking around like, oh, you know, I got this thing sticking out of my eye, right? You'd be down here like this and you can't lift up your head at all, right? So the whole thing in the parable is Jesus is saying this is totally ridiculous because there's absolutely no way you can see. It's impossible. Not only do you have a big tree coming out of your head, but like your head is stuck on the ground. So you're like this. Hey, I saw you have something in your eye. Come here. I'll just get it out. Right? Like it doesn't even, it's totally outrageous. And I don't think we recognize that that is what Jesus is bringing out in this parable, that this is what judging, this is what living by law does to us. It makes us completely ridiculous. We look at other people and we say, oh, don't worry, I figured out who you are based on your actions. But I don't want God to do that for me. All right. So Elijah is going to be all about judgment here. So he gathers Israel to Mount Carmel, which is sort of interesting uh, because there's, there's your word in the Hebrew. It's Carmel, so basically Carmel. And it's typically connected to fruitfulness. So it's translated in Leviticus 2.14. It's translated as fresh ears. Uh, that would be like, you know, plants, not ears. Isaiah 32.15, a fruitful field is how it's translated there. Micah 7.14, it's translated as garden land. Which is interesting because by contrast, you'll notice here, in Amos 1 verse 2, you have the top of Carmel withering when judgment comes. So you have this, this idea of this beautiful, verdant hill, this mountain. And yet when judgment is brought to it, it withers up. Which I think is going to be, again, a picture of what's about to happen. Here's Elijah taking the people to Carmel. He thinks he's going to fix everything. And instead, this actually just makes the problem worse. So... Here's what happens. And again, this is, it's just fascinating to see the way that he approaches this. Here's this black and white manner. Again, he's, he's doing all this off the cuff, right? There was no, the word of Yahweh came to him and told him to do this. He was only told to say, make it rain. So here he comes. He says, all right, here's what we're going to do. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Now you will notice that one of the fascinating things with Elijah is that most people don't respond to him. The people did not answer him a word. So he, he says this, here's what we're going to do, and the people just stare at him, right? I, I, it's the kind of thing where if you were watching this, like in a movie, you know, you're going to hear crickets. And Elijah's like, okay then, you know, let's, let's go along and do this. So it, it's important, I think, to recognize that, again, because this sentence here, the people did not answer, I think is indicative of the fact that this is what is constantly happening. Obadiah's like, hey, Elijah, I saved people. And Elijah says, yeah, why don't you go tell Ahab so that he can kill you, and then, you know, we can all be fine with this. And Obadiah's just like, right. And he leaves. He doesn't say anything in response, right? Ahab, Elijah meets with him and says, let's meet on the top of, of Carmel. And Ahab says, oh, you're the trouble of Israel. And Elijah's like, no, you are. And Ahab's like, okay, whatever. Right? Like, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything back. The people don't say anything in verse 24. Fin in verse 21. Finally, in verse 24, Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. 
what do you think? And the people are like, yeah, sounds good. That's all they say. And I think that this is so important for us to recognize that when we have this attitude, this is what happens. You know, when we, when we recognize that, hey, I've just condemned this person and, you know, I'm waiting for them to say something back and they just, they don't, or they just walk away, we got to realize, oh, wait a minute. Maybe this is what Elijah was doing, right? This, this, because eventually this is how people start to respond. They say, oh, I know that guy, you know, this is what he's going to do. He's going to tell me I did this that was wrong, like, et cetera, et cetera, and that's it. I, I, what am I even going to say back, right? And I think this is what ends up happening. The people did not answer a word. So we get Elijah standing up once again and saying, I'm the only one left, right? Which essentially negates everything all the other prophets were doing for three and a half years. It's kind of not so good. It also shows where Elijah's mind was. I think that's huge. We look at Elijah and we say, oh, you know, he fell into depression at Mount Sinai. Well, kind of. But I would suggest to you, it happened before that. Because he's saying the same thing here. Right? This is, this is not an Elijah who is on a spiritual high, right? This is Elijah who's got some major issues to deal with. And it's more evident at Mount Sinai. But I think it's also evident here at Mount Carmel. He says the exact same words. Now, Paul characterizes these words, this I, only I am left, right? Paul characterizes that in Romans 11, verse 2. It's very fascinating commentary here. He says, Romans 11, 2, Elijah prayed to God. Anybody know? against Israel. So when he was on Carmel, that's what he was doing. This wasn't a, I'm going to rescue everybody. This was a, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm ready to destroy, right? That, that's what's going on. He's prophesying, or he's praying against Israel. And you can kind of see it when he says, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. That's a really funny thing to say. You know, it's almost like Elijah is saying, you guys don't even, you have no idea who the real God is. You know what's funny about that? 1 Kings 18, 17. You remember what Ahab calls Elijah? The troubler of Israel. Now, um, if you thought Yahweh had no power at all, would you admit that his prophet was causing a drought? Probably not, right? Like Ahab was, Ahab was fighting against Yahweh, which is a bad idea, but he seems to recognize there's at least something there. And yet Elijah seems bent on this idea. Like it, it's like he's totally out of touch with the people. Like, I'm going to prove to you who is the real God. And the people are like, well, didn't you just do that in the last three and a half years? We haven't had any water. I didn't make that happen. Baal didn't make it happen. Now, the reason, you might be wondering, you know, why am I hammering Elijah so hard on this? Here's the reason why. I think, at least for me, and maybe our community has done this too, we've often looked at this, and at noon, Elijah mocked them. And we've often said, 
Oh, you know, isn't that funny? Like, look at, look at other churches and how ridiculous they are, you know, when, they, when they're moved by the Spirit and, you know, all these kind of things. And they run up and down the aisles and, and we laugh about it. And we, you know, and people will say, well, I don't know if that's like the nicest thing to do. And we say, oh, yeah, it is. Elijah did it, right? I think it's helpful for us to recognize this wasn't actually something we're supposed to repeat. This was actually Elijah in a moment of his life that probably was not a real good moment. The good moment was raising the widow's son. That's the moment where Christ says, I'm following that example. I'm following that example. There is no type of Christ at Mount Carmel. So I think that's very powerful for us, that I'm not sure that Elijah's supposed to be an example there. Now, he then goes and he repairs the altar of Yahweh, which I just think is interesting that there had been an altar on Mount Carmel at some point. Just kind of keep that in mind. We're going to touch on that again later. Okay, now this shows us where Elijah's mind was, and this, to me, is also very helpful here. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. So he takes 12 stones to repair the altar, which is a reference back to Exodus 24. Moses took 12 stones when he was making the covenant at Sinai. So he takes 12 stones, and that would be representative of all 12 tribes, right? Even though Elijah was just in Israel. So he's, he's thinking about all 12 tribes. He's thinking back to Moses. It also says, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Now, God actually says that twice to Jacob. Israel will be your name. He says it in Genesis 32, 27 and 28, and in Genesis 35, verse 10. So he says it twice there. This is actually an exact quote of Genesis 35, 10. So right here, uh, 1 Kings 18 is an exact quote of Genesis 35, 10. So it's that instance, and the reason that that is significant is Genesis 35 is when the covenant made with Abraham is given to Jacob. So what we're being told here is that Elijah's mind is all over Scripture, which, just let that sink in a little bit. Here he is in a period that appears to not be a hugely spiritual time, yet his mind is on the covenant made with Moses, or with the Israelites at Sinai, and the covenant made with Abraham. That's sort of fascinating. Okay. In addition, here's what he says. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Now, we're semi-used to this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? We use that a lot in our prayers. Elijah says something different, though. He says Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. In fact, there was only one other time when those three names came together as a title for God before this. It was Exodus 32, 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you sworn by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Now, question for you. What's, hap- what's going on in Exodus 32, 13? Any thoughts? Peter? Moses is praying for Israel. He's asking God to spare them. 
and he's using this particular name. So Elijah's thinking back, and he almost seems to totally miss what's going on in this story, and he's still just thinking about the covenant at Sinai, and he quotes what Moses says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So here's Elijah with his mind all over scripture. Now this is an incredibly powerful lesson, I think, to us, because, oh, wait a minute, there, because Elijah's motivation was biblical. I think that's huge. How often are we able to look at scripture and say, oh, well, you know, I got to do something to this brother because clearly scripturally what he's teaching is wrong. So, you know, I got, I got to just push him out or I got to do, you know, I got to make sure, go defend the truth and stop him from doing this, that kind of thing. And that often ends up becoming an attack, right? Or some kind of judgment rather than, hey, let's sit down and talk about this together, <laughs> right? Which is what it should be. I think this is so powerful for us that oftentimes we can have the right motivation. We can have the right biblical basis. And that's essential. We have to have that. If we don't, then we're wrong. But we can still be wrong even with it if our attitude is wrong. And that's the key. We want a biblical motivation but we also want the right attitude. And that's the issue here with Elijah. His motivation was biblical, but his attitude, I think, was wrong. So let's take a look at what happens then. The question is, why did God then answer Elijah's prayer? Well, just uh, read through the prayer here. I already put, you I already put down here that uh, I don't think God answered the prayer, but just consider what the prayer is and uh, see if you notice how God didn't answer it. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh, he is God, Yahweh, he is God. Now, what was Elijah's prayer? I want the people to know that you are God and I want you to turn their hearts. So, was the prayer answered? Kind of, but not really. The people appear to recognize that Yahweh's God, right? They yell it out, Yahweh, he's God, Yahweh, he's God. But this part in the blue, that you've turned their hearts back, that wasn't answered. Now, I think we can prove that because it's going to be answered later. How do we know? Malachi 4, verse 2. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what's he going to do? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Elijah prayed, turn the hearts. And God says, no, no because you're not ready for it yet. But you will someday. So I don't think the prayer was answered. Prayer was heard. God has a plan to answer the prayer. 
But I think when we say, oh, well, look, the fire came down from heaven. Look, it was God, you know, validating all of this. I don't think that's what's going on. Yes, the fire does come down. I think he's allowing Elijah to keep some of his authority. But he doesn't fully answer the prayer. Okay. Now, just again to emphasize where Elijah's mind is at, look at this. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and they seized them. So you'll notice, plural, right? They seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Did you see what just happened? They seized them. Elijah brings them down, and he slaughters them. There's your word for brought. It's masculine singular in Hebrew. There's your word for slaughtered. It's masculine singular. In other words, Elijah kills them all. The people don't. All right, so let's just talk about the problems with a capital P here. <laughs> so we got a few minutes. There have been hints that uh, Elijah's attitude had some issues. So what I want you to notice is we're told twice that his prayer takes place at the time of the offering of the oblation. Again, when scripture says stuff like that, you've got to ask why. There's some reason for us to know. Well, I would suggest that maybe it's because we're supposed to see this as an evening oblation, as one of the evening offerings. Now, let's just read through the requirements of the evening offering, and uh, why don't you tell me if you notice anything different between what God says to do in the evening offering and what Elijah did. It's Numbers 28, verses 3 to 8. It says, You shall say to them, This is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, a year old, without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hin of beaten oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hin for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, like the grain offering of the morning, and its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Do you notice it was supposed to be a lamb, right? What did Elijah offer? A bull. Interesting. Where was it supposed to be offered? In the holy place, which would be Jerusalem. That was not where Elijah was. So there's interesting pieces here. You can take a look at this. I'm only going to leave this up here for a brief moment since we got two minutes right now. So you can take a picture of it real quick if you want, but I would suggest to you that basically Scripture's telling us Elijah was essentially doing an evening offering and it didn't cut it. There was a lot of things that didn't actually match up. And yet, Elijah felt like that's okay because I'm doing this for God. And that was a good way to think, right? That's, that's the right kind of attitude. The problem is, is that attitude didn't generalize to anybody else in existence. That's the problem. And so what we see then is Elijah puts the wood in order. He cuts the bull in pieces. These two words in Hebrew for putting the wood in order, cutting the bull in pieces. Leviticus 1 verses 5 to 8 specifically applies those to what the priests are supposed to do. Elijah was not a priest. He breaks the law in doing this, in performing the job of the priests. Which, was that okay? Well, I mean, David did it too, right? But it was okay when he had the right attitude, when he understood what was behind it. What about Elijah's altar? This is what we'll finish. Did you notice this? 
He repairs the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Like, what? An altar of Yahweh on Mount Carmel? Like, what would that have been? It would have had to have been a high place. Because the only okay altars were where? Jerusalem. That was the only place people were supposed to worship. So, God says in Deuteronomy 12, you will bring all that I command you there your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you see, but at the place the Lord, your cho- the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. It could only be Jerusalem. And Elijah repairs this. And in fact, if you're feeling like I'm stretching this here, this is actually the Talmud. The Talmud sees this as a major strike against Elijah, and they try and figure out some way to get around it. The fact that he worships at Mount Carmel. So the Jerusalem Talmud says, as it is written, at the approach of the afternoon sacrifice, Elijah the prophet stepped up and said, eternal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today may it be known. And Elijah sacrifices when local altars are forbidden. Since the temple was already built, all other altars became illegitimate. Rabbi Simlai said, the word said to him, one must assume that he acted on divine command. I acted on your saying, I acted following your word. The Gemara suggests, come and hear another proof. The verse states, with regard to a true prophet, to him you shall listen. From here it's derived that even if a prophet says to you, transgress one of the mitzvot, that's commandments of the Torah, for example, as is the case of Elijah at Mount Carmel, who brought an offering to God on that mountain during a period when it was forbidden on pain of karat, that means being cut up, to sacrifice offerings outside the temple with regard to everything that he permits for the requirement of the hour, you must listen to him. This indicates that a Torah mitzvah can indeed be uprooted in an active manner. In other words, they're saying, yeah, Elijah broke the law and we had to figure out some way to justify it. Here's the point. We often look at Elijah as, here's the superhero who brings down fire from heaven at Mount Carmel. And I I would put to you, I think this is actually Elijah who's really struggling with, what does it actually mean now to follow God? I've had this experience with the widow, and this was a totally different piece of my life that I've never opened up before, and he defaults back to how he had been. He goes to judgment, he goes back to law, and he doesn't realize that the whole time he's breaking the law over and over. But isn't this how we are when we judge? We're happy to forgive ourselves, but not other people. So what we're going to see is that even though Elijah goes back, God doesn't give up on him. So he's going to go to Mount Sinai tomorrow, and he's going to emphasize law, law, law to God. But God, our God, who is a God of mercy, will not let him go. And so he's going to learn that lesson. And that, God willing, is what we'll see tomorrow.